Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. Welcome back, everybody. Um, I really, really appreciate you all and uh, your patience with me over the last two weeks. Things have been out of control um, in terms of busy in my life. Um, I think I mentioned a while back that um, my boss left the organization that I work for a few months ago. So it's just been me in our department. It's been really, really busy. Um, on top of that, I've had a couple of work trips. So life has been hectic and I just needed to have a week or two where I wasn't scrambling. And honestly, my schedule wasn't working with potential guest schedules. So I am back. I am so happy that you're still with me. And I appreciate the um, little notes of encouragement that I got from people when I posted on social media that we weren't going to be having episodes. Um, Which if you didn't know we weren't having episodes because you don't follow us on social media, you should go and do that right now. Um, We are at LTPF pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, I posted on all three platforms. And you can always email um, at ltpfpod at gmail.com if you have questions about anything um, or just want to send me a nice little note. I appreciate those. So thank you all for that. I also want to say happy pride to everybody who's listening and uh, who may be uh, in the LBGTQIA um, world. Um, I, I hope this is a great month and I hope that, um, you know, we continue to increase uh, the inclusivity of uh, sports. Um, So that's something I'm really excited about. I always love Pride Month. I think it's uh, just always nice and want to continue to uh, push those efforts. So I have a great episode for you today. Um, Nefertiti Walker, Nef as we call her, um, is the Director of Diversity and Inclusion for the Eisenberg School of Management and Assistant Professor for the McCormick Department of Sport Management at UMass, my alma mater. Uh, She is the co-chair of the Diversity Committee for the North American Society of Sport Management, a member of the ESPNW College Athletics Advisory Panel, and the LGBT Sports Coalition Leadership Team. Neff has focused her research on sports organizational behavior, inclusion, and equality, including intersectionality and gender issues in sport. She's a former collegiate athlete, having played basketball at Georgia Tech and Stetson University, and she was selected as a WNBA Top 40 pre-draft selection in 2006. Uh, She also signed to play professionally in Germany, but then decided to continue schooling. Um, she got her PhD and, um, and has been inducted into the Stetson University Athletics Hall of Fame. She's working on various projects regarding inclusivity in intercollegiate sports. I had the pleasure of, um, of working with Neff recently, well, in February, um, on a breakout session at the Women of Eisenberg conference that I went to at UMass. We, um, we talked about um, sexual harassment um, and, and things of that sort in the workplace. Uh, it was a really great conversation that we attempted to 
to record and technology did not work great. Our conversation, um, it talks a lot about inclusivity and diversity and intersectionality. Um, I have her define some of those because I think that sometimes we get them mixed up or um, like me, sometimes we just don't really know what they mean. It's a good conversation. I love Neff. I think, you know, she's doing such great work at UMass. I'm maybe a little biased about UMass, of course, but, um, you know, she, she's really uh, working to make sport and the sport industry a much more inclusive place. And, and I love that. Um, and it is, she'll say this throughout the interview, but it's just so authentic to her. So um, I hope you enjoy this interview with Neff Walker. Hi, Neff. Hello. Welcome to the pod. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm excited for our conversation. Yeah, we, we attempted to record another episode before uh, at UMass when we were speaking there. And we did. that didn't really work out so well. <laughs> no, I mean, technology on any college or university campus never works out the way that it should. Never, ever, ever. Uh, it was so. Su- it was such a good discussion, though. I'm so mad about it, but it, whatever. Yeah, it was a really good discussion, but, you know, those folks that were there, they can hold on. We can hold on to that moment forever. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. We will start, like, I believe I started that, and, like, I usually start the pod, which is, um, can you tell us how you fell in love with sports? Yeah. So how did I fall in love with sports? Um I've always been really competitive. I can remember in fourth grade, and this is before I started playing organized sports, at least. Um, my parents, they always had to give me extra work over the summer. Mm-hmm. I went to, I lived, I grew up in Georgia, which has a terrible education system um, compared to the rest of the United States. And I went to poor schools that, you know, the teachers are doing the best they can. So they always gave me extra work over the summer. And I remember one of my tasks this fourth grade, the summer before my fourth grade was to memorize all of the states and capitals. And I mean, I was so competitive in doing that. Like I had to be, they gave me five states um, to do each day a maximum because they knew I would get out of control with it. I always did more. I was just so competitive in everything that I did um, that my parents knew that sports were for me. And my dad was a basketball junkie. Um, so it was just very natural that I went into basketball. And I did try other sports. I tried karate. I tried softball. I did track and field. And basketball was the only one that, you know, it, it had my heart very early on. One of the things that we talked about, and I think it's such a good story, um, is when you first realize that your gender may impact your, you know, future possibilities or, you know, that there was just a difference between boys and girls, um, particularly in sport. Yeah. So this has happened a couple of times to me. So I, I can't, I can't really remember the example that I used for that, that previous session, but you know, the example that I'm, I'm going to use today is going to be when I was, gosh, I don't know. I had to be four. 
And I only know that I was that young because I'm thinking of where we lived that time we were living in Virginia and we moved to Atlanta um, when I started school. So I know I had to be younger than five. Right. Um, And from that very early age, I followed my dad. I always went to the basketball courts with him. He would play pickup. And I remember picking up a ball and I was the only girl in the gym and he's, you know, He's in this gym with all these dudes and he has his four year old daughter, which is probably awkward to a lot of people. Um, and I always had to sit on the sideline. He always gave me a ball and I'm just sitting over there trying to bounce the ball, trying to move it around playing. He's playing a game and trying to watch me as well. And I can I can remember the moment. And it's weird, right, to remember something from such a young age. And but I have lots of memories from when I was very, very young. Um, and I can remember the moment of this woman coming over and telling me a little girl put that ball down and taking the ball from me. And the reason I can remember is because I remember screaming, right? Screaming at the top (laughs) of my lungs because she just took my basketball and everyone in the gym is crazy how vividly I can remember this, but everyone in the gym stopped and they all, my dad rushed over to me and he's thinking that she did something to me. And she's like, all I did was take the ball from her. She's not a little boy. Um, that part, I don't remember. My dad told me that part, but I just, you know, why couldn't I play with the ball? And why was she taking the ball from me? And when she took the ball from me, she gave it to another little kid. Um, And those are the things that I remember, right? I remember her taking the ball from me. I remember screaming. And I remember her giving the ball to another little boy that was probably eight or nine. Um, And that's, you know, I couldn't conceptualize that at that age, right? Right. Um, I remember being in the gym. I remember her taking the ball and screaming and all of that. And my dad filled in the rest. But that was the first moment I didn't realize it in that moment. But, you know, in hindsight, that was the first moment that I was gendered, so to speak. Sure. I think that the example that you gave was your team beating a boys team. So, yes, that was much later in life. Right. Mm -hmm. So that example, I was gosh, we had to be 12 or 13 and under basketball. And from the age of 11, so for two or three years now, we always scrimmage the same boys team um, and we beat them most times and it was no big deal. Uh, we beat the boys. We were better than them, even though we were the same age. Um, but they, you know, we're all 11, 10, 12. It's not a big deal. Once we got to 13 and under, we scrimmaged them and we were beating them and they didn't like it. And the parents didn't like it. And before you know it, you know, our coaches are yelling and our parents are trying to defend us. These boys, you know, they're getting a little angry, but they're they're not as upset um, and angry as their parents are that they're getting beat by this girls team. And the game had to be called and we never scrimmaged them again. And, you know, trying to thinking back on that and the coaches and our parents trying to explain to us they we had to call the game because they didn't like the fact that they were getting beat by girls. And it was honestly mostly the parents that didn't like the fact that they were getting beat by girls. Right. I mean, these guys didn't like it, but they were sort of used to it. They had we'd been beating them since the age of 11. But it was something about once we hit that age of puberty where it was no longer okay to play with the boys. And it was certainly not okay for us to actually beat the boys um, in a game of basketball. So that is one situation where I remember that happening. I remember why it happened. I remember the conversations afterwards, you know, having with my dad driving back home about this is this is not right. You should never accept this type of behavior from anyone. Um, And they're just sexist. Right. 
And I remember our coaches sitting us down and trying to explain that in the same way. But our coaches were a little different where, you know, the way they explained it was this is just the way things are. But my dad never let me accept the way things were, whether it was sexism or racism. It's really nice to hear how supportive and how kind of on top of it your dad was. Um, Because I think particularly with sexism, right, it's really easy for um, fathers to not recognize it. Yeah. Um, You... uh, Went to one of the schools near where I live right now, Stetson, for your undergrad and grad program. Can you talk about why you went to Stetson and uh, how you made that choice? Yeah, so this this is a really interesting story, and I haven't shared this story with many people. Um, A few close friends know the real reason why. I don't even know if my parents... I don't think I ever really discussed the real reason why I left Stetson with my parents. Not the real reason, but one of the big factors that influenced me leaving. I'm sorry, not Stetson, but Georgia Tech. So out of high school, I was recruited to play basketball at Georgia Tech. Um, And I loved my time there. It was a wonderful experience. Um, You know, it happens to a lot of freshmen where you're playing a decent amount of time. You have a few games where you start. Uh, You feel like you're finally getting into the groove of things. And then my sophomore year, I had some issues with playing time. Um, I felt like I should have been playing more. The coaches, you know, they had other players they wanted to play. That stuff happens in college sports. And, you know, that was part of the reason why I left. But it wasn't the big reason why I left, because, you know, me personally, I was a pretty confident uh, basketball player and certainly a confident shooter. So I, I knew in any amount of time I felt that I would be able to take over that starting spot again. But again, this is something that I haven't shared. So it's, you know, it's kind of emotional to share right now. But a big part of the reason why I left is because I felt like that culture and whether it was the culture of being close to my family who had no idea that um, I was a lesbian, whether that was that culture was being in Atlanta and sort of, you know, a semi progressive city, but a city that I was very familiar with. I had a lot of friends and family with or whether that culture was being on a team that I felt at the time, I didn't know any of my teammates that were that were out or that were gay. So I didn't see a space for me there. Mm. And I didn't feel included. And I felt like no one knew that I was gay. I barely knew that I was gay. I just knew that I had these feelings and, you know, I had these sort of one off relationships and there was really no one to look to. There was no one that was out or that was comfortable um, even talking about these issues. These issues weren't spoken about on the team. Uh, They weren't talked about beyond the team. There was no space that I found on campus. And again, I'm sure there were spaces, right? But there was no space that I found that I was connected to. And there was no open statement about inclusion um, Mm. or even diversity, right? Like you just, you get on this team and you play and you put your head down and that's all that matters. But, you know, this is a very important time in development for young adults and becoming who they are as a person. And if you feel like a big part of who you are as a person um, can't be developed under those circumstances or in in that environment, then you typically look for a way out. Right. Right. Um, So that was a contributing factor. You know, a big contributing factor was the fact that although this was the city that I grew up in and I was raised in, I had a lot of support from family and friends. 
even within my small community of being on campus, I just didn't necessarily feel supported to come out in the way that was necessary for me to fully develop into the person that I am today. And I think that makes sense, right? If you're trying to figure out who you are still and you're surrounded by people who have only known you one way. Absolutely. You know, that, that a lot of that comes from, a lot of growth comes from distance and space. Oh, Um, for sure. So um, did you continue to play at Stetson? Yes. So I went, I transferred to Stetson and immediately, you know, it was a different community. So I was now in this place where I didn't know anyone. I didn't have, no one had this preconceived notion of this is who Neff is and who she should be. And if she doesn't fit that, that norm or that view of what we have of her, then, you know, maybe I won't be accepted that I didn't have that there. So yes, when I transferred to Stetson, I played basketball. I had a terrific career there. Um, I was, you know, a WNBA top 40 pre-draft pick. Like Mm -hmm. I I did really well. Um, And it was it was a great decision. And I think, you know, that was a really important lesson for me that in order to grow, I I had to leave. And sometimes you have to do that. I think in organizations or in life, sometimes in order to grow to the potential that that is necessary for you, you have to get out of the environment that may be stifling you in some particular way. Oh, I, I 100% agree. I mean, I think every every move that I've made, whether it's, you know, going up to UMass, going down to Penn State, going, you know, to the life sciences company, then the telecom company, then making the move down here, um, each one of those has been a really great opportunity for me to either reinvent myself or to... Um, you know, make really big um, leaps and bounds in growth. Yeah. And um, I'm a I'm a big believer that you're often going to have to make those changes, like you said. Um, whether it's you know yeah. actual location, yeah. it's really hard when people have only been in the same town their entire lives. It's hard to explain how um, how that could be stifling. Yeah. And I think it really depends on your environment. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you're in an environment that's completely supportive of you developing and that's also themselves constantly evolving and developing, um, then perhaps, you know, there's a place where you can stay and evolve as as your environment and your organization evolves. But oftentimes that's not what we find in sports. Um, right. You know, oftentimes we don't find sport organizations that are willing to progress and evolve at the same rate as society. There's, you know, if we look at every instance of whether it's women in leadership, whether it's um, racial, ethnic minorities in leadership, sport typically falls way behind uh, general business organizations. Um, They typically fall way behind society in general as far as making progression for being inclusive to diverse individuals. Um, And, you know, I, I hate to include women as diverse individuals because we're you know, roughly half of the population. So so it's not really tight. We're not really thinking about diversity when we think about women. We shouldn't be right. Um, Women should be about half. Like that's, that's what we are on this, on this world on this particular continent or this country, whatever you're thinking about. Um, But we're usually so underrepresented that unfortunately that's, that's how we think about gender and sport. Well, in sport and, you know, really high levels of business anywhere. Yeah. Um, regardless of the industry. Um, and then there are those certain industries that are 
you know, generally known as having less women in them. I mean, telecom is one of them. Uh, I remember being, you know, one of a handful of women at different meetings and things and very still old boys club, old white boys club. Um, And yeah, sport can be very similar to that. And um, I think sometimes like in sport, the there are there's nothing making them change and so therefore that's why things go slower yeah um which you know we we see how that becomes problematic you know multiple times every year Uh, definitely. you know there are instances so you um one of the coolest things about you is that you were drafted in the WNBA. Pre-draft. Pre-draft, so that's a I'm sorry. Yes. Pre-drafted, but you did sign a contract to go and play in Germany. Yeah. And then you were like, nah, I'm going to go get some more schooling. I know. Crazy, right? <laughs> Every now and then I think about that and I'm just like, gosh. <laughs> You know, there was a point after finishing my PhD that I was like, I could just take the summer and go play professionally in Puerto Rico. Like, it's just something about having played professionally. Right. And it doesn't matter that I signed the contract to play professionally in Bonn, Germany. It's like you have to actually step on the court and shoot a basket for it to count (laughs) as to have played professional basketball. And ah, sometimes it just kills me that I don't have that um, on my resume when I you know, very well could have. But yeah, so after getting my MBA at Stetson, I moved to Atlanta um, and my dad and I, we started a real estate company. Um, My dad had a carpet store in Atlanta for 30 plus years and he had dabbled in real estate, just buying properties and sort of keeping them until he felt like it was the right time to sell them and having no formal business training or no real estate license. It was all for sale by owner type stuff. Um, I moved to Atlanta. I got my real estate license and we started this, this business of flipping homes. Um, and it was, it was awesome, right? It's such an adrenaline rush at that young of an age to be doing this type of business. And, you know, are you going to sell the house and you're meeting with contractors every day? And then that by year two, I'm like, if I have to wake up and be at home Depot by eight 30, one more day, I may lose my mind. <laughs> I spent probably 400 and something days in two years in home Depot by eight 30 meeting with contractors. And, you know, I probably would have continued to do it if it wasn't for the recession Um, that that sort of hurt things, particularly in Atlanta. Um, So, you know, once that happened where the market took a significant hit, I had to make a decision. Do I stay and wait this out? Um, Do I I was considering law school. I was considering a Ph.D. I was considering playing professionally overseas. So I said, you know, let me contact that agent that I was dealing with as soon as I finished my MBA. And after my MBA, I was sort of, um, you know, I just want to go and make money. Um, playing professional <laughs> basketball I paid about fifteen to seventeen thousand dollars a year, so I was just right. like, that is not the life that I want to live. Um, but now, you know, I was considering it because I felt like that was something that I missed. So. Um, yes, I applied, um, to get a PhD and the, the, the way I got to that point was, um, I spoke to 10 lawyers. I spoke to 10 professors. I am sorry. This sounds awful. Nothing against the law profession. Um, but eight of those lawyers were not as happy as 10 of those professors. Yeah. Um, and you know, 
after working for yourself for two years, the most important thing to me was my time. Mm-hmm. Um, I valued having full control over my time and I knew the route that I would go um, in law. I wouldn't have full control over my time and the the route that I would go getting my PhD and becoming a professor, I would almost have complete control over my time. Um, so that's, that's another reason why I chose that route. And, you know, meanwhile, I was still talking with this agent um, and she found a team that uh, was still interested with, in me. Um, and they sent over a contract. They faxed it because that's how long ago it was. Uh, they faxed <laughs> my contract over from Germany Um and I, I signed it and they also mailed another contract and that contract came, uh, let's say, you know, one morning and I signed that contract. And before I can get it back in the mail later on that afternoon, my you know regular mail came that wasn't being shipped from overseas. And in that mail, I had my my offer letter for a full fellowship to the University of Florida to get my Ph.D. Wow. Um, so, you know, it was a really tough decision, but. For me, no one in my family had a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, I valued stability probably more um, than a lot of things that people are considering when they're looking for a job or a career. So it was it was the easy decision for me. And again, like I said, that what they were paying women to play basketball overseas um, back then was about seventeen thousand dollars a year, and you know I was going to make just under that as a doc student. So it made the decision kind of easy. And I'm a pretty logical person when it comes to making big time decisions for my life. So that that was the easy route to take at that particular time. It was it felt like the most logical to me to get a Ph.D. Um, in your undergrad and then MBA, um, what did you focus on? So my MBA was a general business administration degree. OK, um, so I didn't, I didn't have any particular focus. Um, I honestly didn't even know what I wanted to do. The only reason I really started my MBA was because in transferring from Georgia Tech to Stetson, I had an additional year of eligibility. Mm. So instead of just taking my time and hanging out, I decided to speed things up and I took 21 credits my last two semesters um, of my fourth year of college so that when I started my fifth year, which is my redshirt year, essentially um, I was starting my MBA at that point. Um, so once I finished basketball, I only had one class left for my MBA. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that's, that's the real reason. I wish I had a better story of why I got an MBA and I wish I like, had this, you know, the idea of starting a real estate company, but I didn't. And I was like, I'm playing basketball for another year. I have to do something with my time. Um, um, I stayed an extra year at UMass because my grades are so bad that in order to get into law school, <laughs> I needed an extra year and an extra degree. So trust me, I get it. Yeah. Um, what was your undergrad focused on? So sport management and business. Okay. And then my PhD um, was sport management. Um, and my research focus is exactly what I'm doing today. It was looking at gender issues in sport. Although, you know, my focus has really moved to looking at underrepresented people, generally speaking. Right. My, uh, my dissertation, I, I did a study or a couple of studies looking at the lack of women coaching and men's basketball, which is, you know, a few years ago was hilarious to me because when I was thinking of doing this topic, a lot of my classmates, um, some advisors, other professors were just like, does anyone care about this? Why would anyone care that there aren't women coaching and men's basketball? Like you want to be sure that this is something 
that's actually going to help the industry and that they care about. I'm like, yes, they should care because women should be coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really, I was so excited when Becky Hammond came on the scene uh, with the San Antonio Spurs. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And I, I love that you've been able to, you know, draw from not only your own experiences, um, but also from, you know, directly from your educational background. Um, with what yeah. you're doing, because I think that that's oftentimes rare. Um, you know, we all we all know the person who you know graduated with whatever degree and ends up in something completely different, which is 100 percent okay. Yeah. Um, but you know, it is always a bit of a rarity when you yeah. when you're able to kind of push them all together. What um what was it that um you know made you focus your research and dissertation on um, diversity and inclusion issues? So, you know, when I, something that's always been really, really important to me, besides having control over my time, um, is being really authentic to who I am um, and being really true to myself, right? And you think back to just, you know, I'm at uh, an ACC school, you know, I'm 19 years old, I'm making the decision that I'm going to transfer because I can't develop into who I think I need to be in this place. So it's just always been something that's been at the forefront um, of of who I am as a person. And that's why I decided to choose this particular, this research area, because in every way, I feel like I sort of embody this idea of diversity and inclusion. So, you know, I'm female, I'm Mm -hmm. African-American, um, I'm a, you know, I have, I have a wife. Um, I have a younger brother who is, you know, mentally disabled. Um, every, every way you can think of it, I feel like I have these multiple layers of intersectional identities, whether it's ability or, you know, sexual orientation or gender or race. Um, so it just, it was such a natural fit because my whole life I've had to navigate the world thinking about all these different identities. Um, and thinking about ways that some places are or most likely are not very inclusive to at least one of those identities. You know, you find a place that's more inclusive to women, but perhaps they're not, you know, inclusive to um, someone who's a lesbian or someone who's African-American or you find the other. So, you know, having to manage all these different identities has taught me a lot about diversity and inclusion just from my personal experiences. So there was a point when I was thinking about what am I going to study? What am I going to do? with the rest of my life, because these are things that advisors tell you when you go into a PhD, you know, this decision that you're making, you know, you're making this decision for the rest of your life. Um, And this is who you're going to be. And this is going to be your identity. And it scares you and it's intimidating, but it's kind of true. Um, So I took that to heart and, you know, I knew that I, I wanted to be true to myself. And I knew that all of my identities are so salient um, in my life that I had to do something that would allow me to spend a lot of time thinking about these things. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's how I came to study diversity and inclusion. I I mean, I love it. You know, I love it. Um, you know, I've had the, the pleasure of having some of these interesting conversations with you and, uh, in front of an audience even. And, um, I think that you embody, you know, what a lot of people hope for their 
working career, you know, to be able to do something that they're passionate about yeah. and, that, and, and, and care personally about. Um, and not to say that things are perfect in your world cause they never are. Right. But you know, so many people have just a job. Yeah. I feel and, incredibly lucky to, to be in the position that I am where I'm able to spend most of my time, um, and effort and energy towards something that I feel so passionate about. Um, and that's so authentically me. Yeah, for sure. And one of the other areas that you focus your research on that I know when I first read it, I was like, I don't even know what that means is sport organizational behavior. Yeah. Can you explain to the class what that is? Yes, I can. It's a lot of things. So basically you're looking at how how organizations function and why they do what they do. Um, that's as simple as I can I can put it because it includes so many different things. It includes conversations of organizational culture, um, leadership, um, emotional intelligence, which I, I love talking about. I'm actually going to talk to uh, UMass Athletics, their head coaches, and some of the athletic directors about emotional intelligence in a few weeks. Nice. Um, yeah, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, you know, diversity, inclusion, motivation, everything that you can think of that considers how people interact and behave in an organization is what that includes. So it's, it's really, really broad. And I am by no means an expert in all of those different areas. Um, I sort of pick and choose the areas that I think are most interesting and also most relevant for what my true passions are. Well, and it's, it's a little myopic almost like it's, yeah. you know, it's an intangible and yeah. And which often makes people uncomfortable <laughs> when yes. you when you aren't yes. able to point to like a tangible product or thing or, you know, it, when you're dealing with all of these varying um, personalities and and just behaviors and traits and and how that can filter down. Yeah, uh, I know having moved from, you know, a a couple jobs on, it's always really interesting to when you when you really start to see how the sausage is made, you know, yeah. and and why and trying to understand the why. Um, so I'm fascinated by that and and your research into that. Yeah, and you know, you said something that stuck out to me is not being able to exactly measure it, right? Right, and. I felt like early on, at least in my career, when I would have these conversations about things like emotional intelligence, um, diversity and inclusion, when I would have these conversations outside of academia with industry people, it was how, how can we measure this, right? What, like, what, how are we evaluating this? And if it wasn't something that they could very easily measure, they didn't want to have the discussion. And I think times are certainly changing real, you know, folks see that it's really important that you hire people with some level of emotional intelligence, um, because if you're not, you do things like what we've seen at these different sport organizations, like, for instance, you know, what was happening with the Dallas Mavericks and their leadership and so on and so on. And I don't want to get into to details because right, I don't want course. to offend anyone. But again, I think when you see these instances happen um, in sport organizations where it's a lack of emotional intelligence and a lack of self-awareness and self-management and self-regulation, why people, really, really smart people are making terrible decisions, 
then organizations start to say, this is something that we should be assessing. This is something that's important for us to think about when we're hiring people. Um, <laughs> Michigan so, State. <clears throat> uh, ex- exactly, right? Um, you know, where is the self-regulation there? Um, where is the organizational regulation? Um, so, you know, these things that I talk, talk about, it's, it's funny. Every semester I have a contingent of students who email me and they tell me how helpful it was for them to have to reflect on their own emotional intelligence because they never have time to do that and they would never make time to do that. And they would never make time to figure out where they're weak at mm-hmm. in emotional intelligence and how can they build those particular areas to become stronger in them. Um, and those are things that we do in my classes that I teach in that, in that particular topic. Do you ever have that experience when you're getting ready for vacation, thinking about everything you're going to pack when you're like, oh gosh, I need to check how many contacts I have left to make sure I can get through that trip in a couple of weeks. And then you don't, and you don't have time to get to the eye doctor. Simple contacts can help with that. They will have you do a quick self-guided, less than five minute vision test using cell phone or your computer. And it only costs $20. That's compared to the 150 or 200 in the doctor's office. I did it. It's super easy. What it does is it double checks that your current prescription is still good, um, still helping you see 2020, and they'll renew that prescription. Now, a couple of things to note, they will not write a new prescription if your eyes have changed at all. And this is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. However, in a pinch, when your contacts are still good for your eyeballs, they can help out. So of course, I have an offer for you all. My listeners will get $30 off of their first order by going to simplecontacts.com slash LTPF or by entering the code LTPF at checkout. Again, that's $30 off by going to simplecontacts.com slash LTPF or by entering the code LTPF at checkout. I think that's amazing because I don't know that, you know, people my age or older I don't know that anybody's really taken the time to do that with them or unless they themselves seek out, you know, by reading like Brene Brown or, you know, things like that. Like I know I've done a lot of that stuff on, on my own. And I I think just given my general history, like I'm, I'm, I feel as though I am much more self-aware than like the person next to me usually. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm also very aware of other people. Um, and, but that's just because I've kind of put a lot of work into it and, and you have to, right. Right. And having those classes that sound fluffy, that sound, you know, intangible, right. Um, are often the ones that provide the most relevant skill set that people are going to need when they go into the workforce. Yeah. You know, I I tell, I joke with some of my colleagues in the MBA program and I say, you know, if we don't have an Enron happen for the next 10 or 15 years, you can thank me because I'm touching on these things, right? We're touching on, you know, making good decisions uh, for the company, but also for yourself and developing people that are think that have a sense of empathy, um, right. and have a, an understanding of what that means and how you can display that in an organization that becomes really, really important. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it, it's one of the greatest tools that people can have 
um, and not enough people have it. And, and honestly, in the legal profession, uh, take it away from sports even. You know, you were probably right in not going that direction because it's so lacking in the legal profession. It's insane. Yeah. Um, you know, which is why when you talk to a lawyer, you're like, I don't need what <laughs> are you a person? Like, yeah. You know, um, which is why I pride myself on being a little different. Yeah. Which is, you know, something. And I, a big part of what I talk about in my courses or beyond my courses, because I have these conversations with, you know, folks in the sport industry and beyond, um, just in passing and, Mm-hmm. It's you can it's becomes very clear when someone has a high level of emotional intelligence, they usually stick out in the crowd um, and whether you're trying to get hired or whether you're trying to evaluate folks that you're hiring, it's important that you understand it so that you know what you're looking for, because a lot of times we can say that person is just different. There's something about them that's different. I like them. I think they're going to be a good fit here. I trust them with my employees. And that part that's different is sometimes, oftentimes, emotional intelligence, some component of emotional intelligence. Yeah. Um, we, we touched upon quickly, um, you know, uh, considering women as minorities in sports and just in the sport business. Um, one of the things that along with that and racial minorities that you and I have talked about is the the decline in diversity generally um, in university programs, um, mm-hmm. you know, sport management programs. Yeah. And, and how, like, what needs to be done to increase the levels of, um, you know, underrepresented, minorities, uh, groups, uh, within those programs. Um, you, I know you are working really hard on this at UMass. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I'm working really hard, hard on this, but also, you know, I have to, my colleagues are working really hard on this. You know, we have Dr. Nicole Melton, Dr. Janet Fink. We have our associate deans like Lisa, uh, Master Alexis, which I, I know you know very well, mm-hmm. um, you know, our dean, our Mark Fuller, associate dean Tom Monterno, like we have a lot of people in our organization. So, again, I feel really lucky and I'm not sure I I know that it's not me convincing these folks that this is important. Right. Like they think that this is really important. Um, so they're willing to give their time and their effort and their resources um, to make Eisenberg or UMass or, you know, McCormick Sport Management, a place that people, diverse people from all around the world want to come to. Um, reasons why I think, you know, and I can only speak for our our organization in particular. Um, I think if something isn't at the forefront of your mind and what you're thinking, then sometimes it can get lost in the mix of a constantly moving society. Um being in a state like Massachusetts that generally speaking, if you look at, you know, for instance, New York City um, or New York as a state, New York tends to be a lot more diverse than Massachusetts as a state. I think there has to be more energy and effort to make your organizations not, not just reflect the diversity that the state has. So let's say and I'm just throwing these numbers out there randomly. But if the state has five percent diversity, but you really want your organization to be more diverse Um, then you have to work really hard to overcome that one particular hurdle. 
Um, so that's one step, right? Is just spending the time and the effort and the energy thinking about diversity, thinking about what different people from different walks of of the earth, what do they want out of a, a program, a business school or a sport management program, and then make trying to create that space in that community. The next piece is community. I think, you know, that's something that we don't spend a lot of time and effort thinking about is how we can build a community that's inclusive to all types of people. We think of, we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we build a community that's going to produce top business school students, top sports students that are going to go on to be leaders in the industry, right? Like we spend a lot of time and effort on that, but we don't spend a lot of time and effort thinking about how are we going to get those high school students or those, you know, future graduate students coming from undergrad programs here that actually want to live in this space that makes them feel like they can be their complete self. Um, and I think, I think that's really important. And what does it mean for them to be their complete self and to bring their complete self into our business school and into our sport management program? I think that's where you have to do the legwork and the research to find out what does that look like for this generation of women, students of color, LGBTQ students, and so on and so on. What does that look like for them? Um, and that's what we're spending time doing now. We're spending time working on different projects. Uh, we had, you know, a, a campus-wide survey that we did on um, inclusiveness and how included do students and faculty and staff feel in different parts of, of UMass and different departments and schools. Um, we've done our own research. We had a student who was an undergraduate student um, who's now moved on to Florida State as a graduate student. And, you know, unfortunately, we couldn't keep him in that's really not typically we don't keep our undergrad students in our grad program. So right. um, we were OK with him going to Florida State this time. But, <laughs> you know, Ben did a whole study along with Dr. Nicole Melton, where they basically surveyed our sport management undergrad students to figure out why we had so few women. Mm-hmm. And from that study, we were able to learn some things that we can incorporate right away. Right. So we can put resources right away to developing mentors for these female students, um, resources right away to to recruiting more female students to our program and offering some level of either summer scholarships through our high school summer program or fellowships and scholarships for those students for a year or two once they get here. So trying to really entice students to come here, but also creating an environment and a community where women feel comfortable in this space. Um, those are those are a few things that I think are really important when you think about how are you going to make your space more inclusive and something that we've spent a lot of time thinking about um, and in our school. You know, one of the things that you just mentioned is making a uh, a proactive effort yeah. to recruit. Um, you know from sets of diversity, right? So women, what have you. And I've heard this same thing with regards to hiring uh-huh. and how, you know, you post something online and you'll get a whole bunch of responses, but to really create a, a culture of diversity and inclusion, um, there are going to be groups of people that you just have to make the extra effort um, to try and pull more applicants from because part of it comes down to that they've never seen someone who looks like them in yeah. these types of jobs, yeah, right? for sure. And to know that they're welcome to apply. Um, for sure. You know, it's a big reason why I have the podcast, right? Yeah. Um, for women, to know that there's a space for them, that 
Um, you know, we have a ton of amazing women in sports and we could use a ton more. Um, and so I think that's really great that, that you all do that. And it's something I think we all need to kind of think about when we're even just putting together panels, you know, for like a conference, you know, it's, yeah, you could put the all call out and see what happens, but you know, it's really up to the organizers to to look at what they have in front of them for speaker applicants, if that's you know what it the process, and say mm, we're we're missing a couple. Yeah. You know, and to to go to individuals and ask them to speak. Um, I think that's. No, I agree completely. Yeah. Um. So I love that you guys are doing that, and you know, I'm a obviously a big fan of UMass. Uh, you yes, know, you are. And, having, we are a big, and UMass is a big fan of you as well. <laughs> <laughs> having gone there and all. Um, so I'm always really happy to hear about, you know, what the program is doing to um, increase the diversity and inclusion. And, you know, I think one of the fundamental questions that comes up is, you know, what, what does inclusion entail? Yeah. Right. And, you know, so how do you, how do you explain that to people when they're like, okay, I get diversity, but what's inclusion? Like, isn't diversity enough? Yeah. So, you know, when I think inclusion, I'm thinking people feel comfortable bringing their complete self to work. Um, and that's, that's how I would define it. And, you know, again, my, my good friend, a professor here at UMass, Nicole, she was the first person that I heard say this, so I always give her credit for it. Um, diversity is counting the heads and inclusion is making the heads count. Um, and I know there has been many others who have said that, but I like Nicole. She's my friend, so I'm <laughs> going to give her credit for that. So, <laughs> Good job, Nicole. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that's, that's how I think about that concept is, yeah, we all understand what diversity is because we've been talking about it for so long. Like, how many people do we have in the room? There's not enough women on, on boards. Um, we don't have enough female executives, so on and so on and so on. But when you have diverse people in these places, a lot of times why you lack diverse thoughts and why you really stay stuck in your old ways and you don't evolve um, from a diversity and inclusion perspective as an organization is because these people who may come from diverse backgrounds and have diverse identities don't feel comfortable speaking up when they know that you're doing something that's probably either not right or is not very inclusive to even their particular group. So right. you, for instance, you may have women on a board um, and you know someone's doing something that's quite sexist or they're, they're saying something or they're pushing forward some new policy that's not inclusive to you know, women in some particular way, but they don't feel empowered to speak up because they're not they're They may be female in identity, but they're not bringing all their experiences and everything else that comes with being a woman to that particular boardroom because they don't feel comfortable because that space just is not inclusive. Right. Um, so that's why I think, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to people about how the inclusive piece is so very important. Um, you know, Nicole and I, we did a study, uh, doing some work with ESPNW Mm -hmm. where we looked at college sports. So we looked at all D one college sports and basically the folks at ESPNW wanted to see is college sports, you know, are they inclusive? 
Um, so in our work, what we found basically without going through the details of it is that athletic departments that were inclusive but lacked diversity were the ones that performed the worst. Um, sorry, athletic departments that were diverse but lacked inclusion were the ones that performed the worst. And athletic departments that had birth, both inclusion and diversity were the ones that performed the best. Hmm. So the idea is that you can't just have diversity. Otherwise you're not going to do well. Those were the, you know, those were the lowest performing or athletic departments as far as success. And we success was both how the administrators define success. So were you successful, but also looking at wins and losses on the field or court or whatever it may be, right. Which is really important to college athletics. Are you winning? And those organizations that have diversity, but don't have inclusive policies, you know, they, they're not very successful. Um, so, you know, I think you're exactly right where this this idea of inclusion is something that a lot of folks just aren't able to really wrap their arms around yet and get a good grasp of it. Um, they, they understand that they have to hire people that look, think, you know, feel, come from different backgrounds and so on and so on. But they're not quite understanding, particularly in sport, how to really develop these cultures where people feel comfortable bringing their whole self and speaking up um, when they're sitting at the table with the big bosses. Right. And I, you know, I, I think that that is something that, that spans multiple industries, but you're right. In sports in particular, you'll have a token female, you know, chief something. Yeah. Um, You'll maybe have an African-American senior VP, but if their opinions aren't going to be heard uh-huh. and um, and they feel like they won't be understood, um, yeah. it, it, it certainly will cause, you know, either friction or just lack of productivity at the end of the day. I yeah. Mean, yeah, I agree. And that's when you have, you know, these policies that go through and when you know, the broader society or the public, when we hear about it, we're like, how did that happen? You know, how did they pass that policy? You know, I can, you know, I think one that comes to mind is the H&M ad that went out, you know, that I don't even have to get into the details of it because most people listening will know exactly what we're talking about. But the thought was, you mean to tell me there wasn't one person in that whole process from ideation to print that didn't realize that, whoa, this is probably something that we shouldn't do. Right. This is a mistake. Let's correct this. Let's go back to the drawing board. Um, you know, I'm sure there were people in the room that recognized that that was, you know, something that would be very offensive to a lot of different people, particularly people of color. Right. Um, and no one spoke up. Right. It, no one spoke up enough to stop it from going through production. So, you know, that's where inclusion becomes really important, allowing people to feel comfortable to speak up when they should mm-hmm. um, or even when they feel like they should um, in their organization. Yeah, I mean, I can speak from my own experience a little bit, but I know it's something that, you know, we'll go back to ads um, yeah. and what you're saying with H&M, right? Like, and making sure that not everything... That my organization puts out is a bunch of white people, right? Yeah. I mean, 
as like the fan base or whatever and yeah. always making sure. And it's just, it's a little, some people might call it nitpicky. Yeah. Um, and I am sure that people roll their eyes at me at times. Yeah. But I can also imagine being, you know, somebody who's a fan from, you know, an underrepresented group who's like, there's no place for me to be a fan. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, you know, we have um, some great people and, um, you know, who, who keep an eye out for that, but every once in a while something will slip through and I'm like, "Mm, hmm. Yeah. Uh, And I think that happens, right? I mean, you know, I, I, at at UMass and our our business school, Eisenberg School of Management, I'm the director of diversity and inclusion. And certainly things will pass me by where I'm not aware of my own bias. Right. So I I have a pretty funny, not a funny, but a pretty relevant example of this is I was putting together a case study that we're going to publish on our website pretty soon on leadership. Um, And I was working on this case study with one of our students, as well as our director of our, our, our center, um, Art McCormick Center, um, Will Norton, and we're all working together on this, all, you know, knocking this out. We think we're doing a great job. This is going to be an awesome case study on leadership. We have six or seven different examples of leaders in the sport industry. We're using real leaders as our examples. And then we look at it and we have all white men. Mm-hmm. And we're just like, and I, I was giving it probably the, the 15th look. Um, and this is probably the 10th revision of this, this document before I, I recognized. And I said, whoa, we have all white men as examples. And all of us are super duper entrenched um, <laughs> in diversity and inclusion. Right. I mean, Will Norton, he's he's the chair of one of our diversity and inclusion task force in our department. Um, so all of us are super duper entrenched in this. But we have we come from our experiences. Right. Like Mm -hmm. our experiences are we see mostly white men in leadership and sport. Um, And that's our bias, regardless of the fact that I'm black. That's still my bias lens is that when I'm developing something quickly or even not so quickly, I'm still going back to what I've seen the most and my experiences that I've had in sport. Um, So, you know, I, I think people have to cut themselves some slack. I think that's where people get in this place to where they get uncomfortable talking about diversity and inclusion when they feel like they should know it all. And they feel like, you know, they don't allow themselves to make mistakes and they don't allow themselves to learn. I think you have to allow yourself the space to grow, to learn and evolve um, in this space, because I think us folks that are doing this every day and thinking about it constantly and, you know, us ourselves have multiple diverse identities. We still revert back to the biases that we've seen in our experiences in this particular industry. Well, and and you bring up an important point that comes into play in so many different conversations and that's that we can hold bias against ourselves yeah oh definitely and or people who look like us right oh, definitely you always get that argument like well it was a black cop yeah well, <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah what has that cop seen in his lifetime what are his experiences um, what is he seeing in the media constantly? What is he seeing when he turned on the news? Or how, what do the criminals look like that he's constantly consuming, um, whether the newspaper, online media sources, whatever it may be, right? Right. So, yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, and in getting in touch and understanding those unconscious biases within ourselves is a level of, I think, 
emotional intelligence that so many people can't get to. Um, yeah. It, because it takes a lot of self-reflection and, um, and maybe challenging beliefs about ourselves. Oh, definitely. Right. Definitely. And I, and you know, a big part of it is the self-reflection. Mm-hmm. I don't think most people take the time to really consider the decisions they're making and why they're making them, right? Because most of us are having to make so many small decisions throughout the day that they become kind of unimportant to us, mm-hmm. um, but quite impactful for a lot of people in their lives. So I, I think one is having that time, like you said, to reflect on the decisions you're making and the things that you're doing and why you're doing them and also recognizing who you're leaving out as well. Right. Um, and right. making sure you're not leaving folks out because they're not in your network, um, as opposed to leaving them out because they're not in the industry. And that's, that's a big difference that I think a lot of people in the sport industry are not very aware of. They assume that if someone's not in their network, then either that person hasn't put in the work to get to know them or put in the work to get in their network, or they haven't done something right because it can't possibly be that their network is biased. Right. right. Um, but you know, more often than not, it's the fact that our individual networks are completely biased with people that look, act, and believe exactly the way we do, mm-hmm. um, which is unfortunate because that's how we typically make decisions in sport. We go to our network and then we hire from our network. Right. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really tough. Um, and I think it takes a lot of effort and energy to fight against the way that we've been doing things and the way that we've come to see how we make decisions in sport in regard to hiring people and diversity and inclusion. Sure. I mean, I have to, I kind of have to catch myself with the podcast. Um, yeah. And, and some of it is, you know, who have I reached out to versus who has responded Yeah. and, and like, and timing. Right. But I remember just like a week or so ago, me being like white, blonde, white, blonde, white, blonde, fuck. (laughs) Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, let's, we need to kind of get back on track. And I think actually something that I'll probably do soon with anybody who's been a prior guest and then going forward for new guests is um, kind of like a quick little survey so yeah. that I can, I can really have data about, you know, what areas uh, in the, diversity checkbox world, um, I'm not, you know, giving equal access to or reaching out to enough Yeah, and, and making sure that I'm, you know, uh, doing that. Yeah. Yeah. But that, you know, like we've said, that takes effort and that takes you first being aware that this is something that's important to you. And this is something that may or may not need, um, not necessarily to be fixed, but at least to have acknowledged and to put some thought into how you may change this or how you may make your, your podcast more inclusive. And, you know, I, again, I think we also beat each, beat ourselves up quite a bit because I've looked through and you have tons of diversity. I mean, I was looking at your last um, guest and I was just like, wow, her own podcast, the first female and obstacle course racing, like it just went on and on and on. And I was looking at her accomplishments and that was just so far outside of what I think about and what I do every day. But it was so cool to see a woman in that space and leading in that space. Yeah. Yeah. She's such a badass. (laughs) Yeah, she is. That was awesome. 
like such a badass. It's yeah. ridiculous. Um, I mean, you can't get me on an obstacle course race. <laughs> like you, you just can't. <laughs> yeah, I've done one, but I wasn't very good at it. And I was really just excited for the beer at the end. Um, so that and, doesn't count, right? <laughs> well, no, I think that always counts. Um, yeah. That's how a lot of people get into running. Uh, yeah. I, I had an ex who um, really got into into that stuff like the last year that we were dating and he'd like push me to get involved. And I'm like, I don't need to be like electrocuted. Like I feel, (laughs) I feel like that actually might happen on accident one day anyway, just because (laughs) like, I don't need to torture myself. And that's, and that was at that time how I viewed it. Right. And you know, the space has also evolved a lot and you know, whatever, but yeah. Margaret's just ridiculous in the best ways. (laughs) It's awesome. But you know, every now I go through these phases where I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a vegan for two weeks or I'm going (laughs) to be a vegetarian or I'm going to do, I'm just going to run every day and I'm going to run three miles and I'm going to do this for two months. Like I get on these really wacky kicks where I do stuff. And, you know, I did have a kick where I was doing these Spartan race sprints and things like that and they were a lot of fun but I was like I can't do this like I just it was just way too far out for me and the level of commitment that you need to train for that like I was again listening to um your podcast with her with Margaret and she was talking about you know the training and reading up on her a little bit I'm just like this is what I couldn't do this I'm also super competitive right we talked about how you know in fourth grade I was competing against myself trying to memorize as many capitals states and capitals as I could um, in a short amount of time as possible. So I just, I'm not the person that I can't do those hyper competitive things and just take it easy. So it's best for me to do either old woman basketball leagues or old men's basketball leagues, which I played in this past year, or, you know, just work out on my own. Because if I try and do that ultra competitive stuff, I'm going to end up hurting myself. I will. Positive of it. The fact that you're calling yourself old woman is just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard out of your mouth. I ever. think of myself in basketball years. In basketball years, I'm an old lady. Um, and I can admit that. All right. And that's, that's how I think of my life in basketball years. <laughs> it's graduation season, but your mind might be thinking about whether or not you need to get another degree. If that's the case, Florida International University is certainly one of the schools you should be checking out. Florida International University's 20 years of excellence in online education. FIU is ranked in the top tier of research universities in the nation, and their online students can take advantage of high-impact opportunities that lead to success and leadership skills. Online master's degrees from FIU are designed to meet the demands of busy professionals and offer flexibility for family obligations. Check out their website for more information at fiuonline.com slash podcast. That's fiuonline.com slash podcast. One of the other areas that, um, you know, is within your realm of research interests and that we've heard a lot more about in general public space in the last, I'd say, year and a half um, is intersectionality. 
Yeah, that's my my area. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not sure that we all truly understand what that means. Yeah. So, you know, this and the reason why I think I I identify so much with it, because it's exactly who I am. Right. Mm -hmm. Like having these multiple identities um, and not being able to turn one off. Like I don't go to work and say, you know what, today I am not going to be married to my wife, Kelly. I am just going to be this person who is happens to be of darker skin. You know, I don't don't even want to be African-American today. I'm just going to be this person of color and this woman going into the workplace. Like I can't do that. Right. Because everything that, that, you know, everything that I have to deal with throughout the day, I'm dealing with it partly because it's part of my job, but partly because of some of these identities. Mm -hmm. And I'm very aware of that. Um, And I'm very aware of my identities that I wear. You know, I used to wear my hair straight. Now I have locks. Um, which again is a direct sign of my identity. My mom's actually Jamaican. So that's part of that identity. The reason why Mm -hmm. I have the locks, um, which, you know, is just, just keep throwing these identities in there. Right. Right. Uh, But (laughs) so I can't really, I can't ever turn off parts of my identity. And that's what intersection intersectionality is saying is that we have all these different components of who we are. And they influence our experiences and how we experience the world, but also how the world experiences us. Um, and I, I think you have to be aware of these identities. Nicole and I, um, we did another study together where we, we looked at these women who were coaching. And what we found is that the more marginalized identities that they had, the less likely they were to continue to work in sport. So the, the more likely they were to leave sport altogether. Because we know sport is a very difficult place for women to work. We know sport can be a very difficult place for racial and ethnic minorities or underrepresented people to work and to really advance their careers. We know sport can be a very difficult place for um, LGBTQ folks to work and to advance their careers. So having one of these identities makes it difficult. Having multiple of these marginalized identities makes it so it seems so overwhelmingly difficult that these folks just say to heck with this. Like, why am I saying I can go work for Nike? Right. They want me. They're going to treat me, you know, fairly. Working, and these were people that were working in particularly, you know, college sports, coaching, um, those deeply entrenched sport jobs where, you know, it's not transferable, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a coach, it's not necessarily transferable. I mean, you have transferable skills, but that job isn't transferable to Nike, your job as a, a basketball coach, for instance. Right. Um, so you're having people give up you know, decades of experience because they're just tired of dealing with the day-to-day BS of being whatever multiple marginalized identities that they may have. Um, So to me, that was fascinating. And again, like I said, everything that I do or everything, at least everything that I try to do, I try to make it authentically me. Yeah. And, you know, intersectionality is authentically me. Like it's who I am. Um, having multiple identities being marginalized at different points in my life because of these different identities, that's all a part of who I am. So, you know, studying intersectionality, it comes natural to me. Um, it's funny when I, when I fell upon the theory, I was like, wow, this has been, this is my whole life. Like where, where has this been? My, this is explaining a lot of what I've gone through my whole life. So it was, it was a really cool moment, um, in my career. 
I, you know, so when I have heard the most about intersectionality, it was around the women's march and, Uh um, and the more I think about it, the more I wonder whether or not they were using the terminology correctly or whether or not they really meant inclusion as opposed to intersectionality. So I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think at times, and this is me observing, you know, on basically on social media, right? Cause I've been to a few women's marches, but I'm really, the way I really have observed um, their conversations around intersectionality has been via social media. Um, sure. And I think a lot of times they're using it to talk about inclusion, right? But I think also sometimes they are using it to, to its true form because there suggests there is a suggestion that the women's march itself and that brand is mostly white women sure. and is not an inclusive space. So I think a lot of times with some folks as a part of that that particular um, organization and the brand of that organization, what they're trying to do is saying, no, we are an intersectional organization. Um, and we understand that we have different identities from different people that are a part of this organization or not all straight white women. So I think I feel like they have tried to do a really good job of highlighting that they are intersectional and they're trying to be intersectional in their approach, whether that, that always happens. You know, there's groups from both sides that will argue both both right. ways. But I think they're, they have used that word at times appropriately. Um, to try and say, you know, we have multiple identities that have been marginalized and we're coming together in this space um, to, to fight this inequality. Sure. Maybe I just wasn't understanding it. No, no, I think, no, that's why I said <laughs> Which is I think, good, you know, like. I think you're right. I think it was both. Like, I, I have heard them use the term when they're really just talking about we're an inclusive space. Right. It's like, okay, well, that's great. But do you recognize that you have people that are in your organization that have that aren't just straight white women? Right. right, right. So I think you're absolutely right. It's been a little bit of both. Um, you say that you play old women and old men basketball <laughs> leagues. I do. Which so. I love that you're in the old men's basketball league because obviously that makes me happy. Um, what else do you do? Or, you know, outside of work that keeps you, I don't know, by way of self-care or keeps you like grounded or what? Yeah. Happened? Oh, that's a good question. And I will say for folks that may be listening that I play with that <laughs> <laughs> may be offended by the fact that I'm calling these leagues. Most of the players in both of these leagues are younger than me, especially the women's league. A lot of those women are in their early 20s, late 20s, early, early 30s. Um, and then in the men's league, it's, it's a combination of all of it. So there, it's not really the old women and old ladies league, but I like to call it that. But, you know, besides play basketball, which I love and I still do at as competitive level as I can, um, I do, I like to work out a lot. Um, I like to, again, I said, I always have these sort of fixes, these, 
things that I get on that I have to do, whether it's, you know, training for a half marathon or, you know, working out. The thing that I'm doing now is working out for 100 days. So, you know, on Twitter, you may or may not have seen um, me posting about these workouts that I'm doing. Um, and a buddy of mine, Kwame Ajamang, he's a professor at LSU and we're really good friends and have been for, you know, almost a decade or more. Um, we always get into these workout things together and, you know, he's in Louisiana, but we still talk every day through social media or texting and we're constantly competing against each other as well. So, you know, I do things like that for fun. Um, so I, I stay physically active. I'm also getting into this space where mindfulness is becoming really important to me. And I know that's such a broad term. And I know people in that particular segment of the industry probably get really annoyed when people use that term so loosely. Um, But what I mean by mindfulness is really just trying to quiet my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, That's become really important to me. Um, And I, I think, you know, for a lot of reasons, although I am currently very lucky at the moment to not suffer from any particular mental illness that I know of. Um, Mental illness, there are plenty of people in my family that suffer from various types of mental illness. Um, So, you know, part of me quieting my mind is trying to listen to myself and also to quiet all the noise of work and society and relationships and friendships and everything else that pull, um, pull on us, but, and really, sort of retreating back in a space to where I can have some calmness um, and listen to my body and listen to my mind and listen to what, what it's telling me. Um, because I do have a habit of getting so caught up in sort of the everyday routines that I don't listen to my body when it's telling me, hey, you're getting sick or hey, it's time for you to you know, take a break from this or whatever it may be. So um, meditation is something that I'm really trying to get into. And I started with the you know, eight minutes Mm-hmm. Um, at a time meditation. And that's worked really well for me. Um, yoga is something that I've been doing for quite some time now. And, you know, I, I try to do there's we have this one class at my gym It's called warrior yoga. It's exactly what it sounds like. You're you have dumbbells and you're doing shoulder press while, you know, you're doing a sun salutation like that's that's intense. What? <laughs> That's not quieting my mind at all. No. So, yeah. So as much fun as that is, I had to, I had to back off from that because again, I found myself instead of quieting my mind and relaxing, I was just counting like, you know, how many arm bicep curls am I going to get in, in this particular pose? Yeah. Um, so in looking for, wait, have you done goat yoga yet? I have not done goat yoga. <laughs> have you done goat yoga before? Yes. Have you really? Yes, okay, twice. Okay, goat yoga? Can you it's, just so, shorten up? Like, okay, so it's yoga, um, allegedly, with <laughs> the with uh, particular kinds of goats. And what happens is the goats kind of like roam around. And it's best if you go to a place where the goats already live, like... A lot of like farms will do this or um, there's a or like rescues will do it. Okay, time um, out. Sorry to interrupt. However, are you doing yoga on just farmland, just on the ground? There are mats. So that's where I would probably have to bow out. I'm a little bit of a germaphobe. Oh, just, so you would. So you so you wouldn't enjoy the goats jumping on you? No. Oh, see, I, I loved it. 
No, no, I, w- I would not enjoy that. I would enjoy watching people do this type of yoga. And I would think it was really cute because I think goats are really cute. But I'm a bit of a germaphobe. I'm actually a lot of a germaphobe. Um, <laughs> what, so. about if what, if, what about the baby goats? Would you want to hold one? Eh, I think I'd pass. I think they're cute. I love them. I think they're very cute animals. I'd probably pet their little head or, you know, <laughs> but holding one with their little dirty. Yeah, I'd probably not do that. You um, have a dog. We have a dog. However, people joke about this, but we also have baby wipes and we wipe his paws when he comes in the house. <laughs> and it's to the point now that when he walks in the door, he literally holds up <laughs> he holds up one paw, he puts it down, he holds up the other paw. And you can just see on his face he's like, and these are the moms that I, I was dealt. This is the life that, <laughs> that the dog gods chose yeah. for me. Thanks a lot. Um, yes. Oh my God, so, you would hate cats. Yeah, I couldn't do cats. I'm I'm actually really really allergic to cats. I'm allergic to dogs as well, but now I've gotten over that with him. Yeah. Um, the past three years, but I'm really allergic to cats still. So that's one uh, reason why you wanted to have one. But also, yeah, I heard they don't really like to take baths, and they they sort of hang out in that litter box. Yeah, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Um, All right, no goat yoga for you. Yes. I bet I bet there's goat yoga up in Amherst or Northampton. Oh, there has to like, be, right? Has to be. Like yeah. there has to be. Um I'm gonna I Google to and and put links <laughs> on the website page, which I'm just warning everyone right now, this is gonna be released on what tomorrow, Wednesday, the sixth of June, because I've been MIA for a couple weeks. The the web posting is not going up until the weekend, you guys. I'm sorry, but I just can't. Um, that being said, I will try and link to a goat yoga, uh, (laughs) event or something up in the Amherst or, uh, Western mass area, maybe even Boston so that you can go. Yeah. I'd have to bathe in Purell after that. I mean, you just take a a shower afterwards and then you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. They're little hoofs with. Yeah, goat poop and dirt and they do sometimes. Um, so their their poops are like pellets, little like yeah, you know, like little rabbit, yeah, baby ball things. That so sometimes that happens. And one peed on my mat once. Yeah, um, the mat would be trash. I hope. Oh that yeah, I donated okay. the mat to them. Uh, they can okay, they could clean it. Yeah, um, but but they're oh. so cute and like. I'm going to, I'm going to text you some pictures of me doing goat yoga. Baby goats are adorable. Oh like, my I God. They're adorable. And I, I enjoy petting the top of their heads. Um, but did I'm you, not going to pick one up or. Did you see, did you see on Twitter the other day? Um, I don't know who it was, but there was an athlete holding a, a baby goat. And I was like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> and we should have, and then it was with Brenda, Brenda Elsie and I were going back and forth. And she's like, we, I was like, we should have just pictures of athletes with goats. She's like, we should have goats with goats, like greatest of all time. (laughs) And then I said, oh my God, this is a great calendar idea. And all of the proceeds can go to a goat rescue. That is a fabulous idea. I wonder if Serena Williams would hold a baby goat. She would totally hold a baby goat. You think so? I mean, she 
I do not think that Tom Brady would hold a baby goat. I'm picturing him right now in his Uggs, one no. of like the winter. But have you ever seen him hold an animal? <laughs> no, I have not. Like somehow I feel like he does isn't an animal person. I would imagine not. He likes. He seems like he likes to have control over a lot of things in his life. So, um, yeah. as much as I think I control our pup, I don't. So, <laughs> um, no, you you just can't. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would imagine he's probably not an animal person. Yeah. But so, you know, he could surprise us. And now LeBron would hold one, I think. LeBron's a saint in my eyes. <laughs> he can do no wrong. So, of course, he would hold a baby goat and he would probably build a sanctuary for baby goats after holding <laughs> the baby goat and falling in love with it because right. he's a saint and he can do no wrong in my eyes. So, okay. Um, we're going to wrap up soon, but I'm gonna, we're going to talk about something timely. Um, you're watching the finals. Uh, I know this because. I had to schedule around the finals for your interview. <laughs> I appreciate you doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so who do you have? Oh, gosh. I mean, I would bet my house on um, on the Warriors winning the whole thing. Okay. Um, I don't have an opinion. Um, yeah. So there's that. Um, <laughs> They're just so far outmatched. Like, I feel sorry for LeBron and those teammates that he has compared to, you know, the Warriors who have three, four, however many Hall of Famers they have on their team is just ridiculous. Sure. Uh, they're one of their problems. They may end up being the greatest team of all time. Um, that yeah. very easily can happen the next season or two. So, yeah. What, um, what would have happened to you on any of the teams that you've played on, including your elder league and if you <laughs> forgot the score and just held on to a ball at the end of a tied game. I would never do that in my worst nightmare. <laughs> like that is inexcusable. Um, and if I had a teammate that I'd do that, I don't know how I would hold myself together. Like I would lose my mind. I mean, that was one of the most boneheaded plays in the history of basketball, probably I in the history of sports. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 way, way up there. And, you know, he's done it before. So I'm a huge Knicks fan and people are sending me clips of when he did something very similar with the Knicks where he's like, I didn't know how much time we had left. And his teammates were looking at him like, and you get paid millions. Why? Um, Basics. Um, yeah. And it wasn't even he didn't know how much time was left. He didn't know the score. Yeah, he didn't know the score. He didn't like, know the score. And, you know, at the same time, like, honestly, those things happen. Yeah. And games like they do happen. They typically happen to the same type of people on every team. I will say that. And he fits that type of person. Um, exactly. <laughs> but at the end of the day, when you play sports and when you're, you understand that that's like, yeah, you may have won the game. You may not have won the game. Like he may have went up and got his shot blocked. Um, you just, I mean, you may have called a timeout and then lost the ball. Like you just never know what can happen. Right. Right. So, as sports people, like it was a lot of fun to make fun of him and the play for the first day or two. And then it's like, OK, that's enough. Like it's over. You so you have to move on. You have to have, you know, the shortest of memories oh, um, for sure. to be for able sure. to play at a high level the next day. So, yeah, okay. it was interesting for a while. But 
I just I I just sat there going, oh wow, I don't even watch basketball really, and even yeah. I know that that was bad. Like, yeah, that was bad. Um, and then, what are your feelings and thoughts, which I'm sure are, you know, many, on um, short suits? Uh, LeBron James. LeBron yeah. King James, the chosen one, started that trend. So I love it. Um, again, remember, LeBron can, he's a saint and he can do no wrong. Um, however, I mean, I, so you know what? LeBron didn't start this trend. I did. So my wife, <laughs> Kelly, and I, we, when we got married uh, four years ago now, we told our parents and our family that we were going to get married and we sort of eloped. Like we just got married at Smith's garden because you know we said uh, we didn't have the money to pay for a big wedding and we didn't we thought we were way too old to have our families pay for a wedding so whatever the case we got married and we wore did she wear no she wore a regular suit i wore shorts uh with a blazer i wore a short suit oh my god that's amazing i have to send you a picture i wore shorts suit when we got married so actually lebron probably was on my my instagram account Obviously. And saw obviously and saw that and that's why he started that trend. No, I like it. Obviously I like it. I wore it four years ago. But I, I think it's I like anything that's sort of creative and sure. mixes old and new. And I think that does a really good job of mixing sort of the old traditional suits with, you know, a new style of throwing in the shorts. So I do I do enjoy the the custom suits that all match. Um I've I've been finding some joy in that. Um a short yeah. suit, it just, it, no, it actually takes me, it takes me back to um, message boards and like one particular website in particular that I've, um, you know, it's one of those websites, it's like a in blog form, but the comments are really where like the real discussions happen. <laughs> and, um, it, it, and this is a, it's called Corporate um, and it's professional women, a lot of lawyers, um, and, you know, one of the things that gets talked about is, you know, what's appropriate to where to work and particularly like conservative offices. Yeah. And the shorts, the short suit is always something that's like you never wear that ever in the office. Yeah. Like interns do not wear this. <laughs> yeah. So I've never worn it in the office either. But I think the only time that I have worn a short suit is when I, when I got married. So mm. I, I mean, listen, means. I, I, I think his socks probably, and the, the boots probably helped make that outfit for him. Um, but I, I do love one of the things I love about the NBA because the NBA does this so much more, but there are individuals within the NFL who do it as well is, you know, what they wear in or yeah. what they wear like afterwards. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in the NFL, obviously Cam Newton, um, I think Vaughn Miller too, right? Yeah. Um, But I I do love that kind of combination of fashion and sport and um, how out of control it can get sometimes in like the best ways. (laughs) Exactly right. And I think the NBA, generally speaking, I feel like they've done a really good job of really merging culture and what millennials are interested in like individuality and dress and fashion and things like that with you know their brand 
as a sport entity, which is a lot of fun to watch. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, what are a couple of things that you would tell someone who is thinking about going into the academic world for their career uh, and or to people like that people wouldn't just know about what you do? Oh, gosh, that's a tough question. I would say the the biggest one is there's this misconception that we don't work over the summer. Um, And I think to be good at your your craft, um, whatever that craft may be, I think you have to put in the time and effort to stay relevant. Um, And I think, you know, you can't take the whole summer off. So I would say that's one big misconception that folks have about academics is that we work and we teach. And then in the summer, we hang out by the beach and read books for fun. Right. Um, That's that's not the case at all. We're often doing a lot of you know, other things during the summer, but also something that I think would be really helpful for someone trying to become a professor or work in academics in any way, or even work as an academic consulting is to really develop your craft and who you want to be and have that rooted in who you are authentically. So whatever your authentic self looks like, if you can root part of who you are as an academic in that, um, I think it will make your life a lot more enjoyable. We have to spend a lot of time researching and focusing on and teaching in a very, very narrow area. You know, I think about it. I I'm in sport, but I never really touch sport marketing, sport law, sport sponsorship. You know, I can go on and on and on of these entities of these parts of sport that I never touch. So, you know, whatever you're going to do, you're going to spend most of your life and almost all of your career in that one very narrow particular area. So do something that's authentically you. And I think you'll be a lot happier in this space. Um, and did you say three or just a couple? I just said a couple. <laughs> okay. I think, I think those are the main ones. I think, you know, stay true to yourself as well. Um, mm-hmm. just like every other industry, I think, you know, the Academy has its own issues, right? Um, whether that's, you know, this ivory tower type of elitism, whether um, it's not spending your time and effort trying to connect with the industry because you really don't have to. Right. I don't I don't have to do work or sit on panels or board advisory boards for ESPN or ESPNW or, you know, work with the NCAA. Like I don't have to do any of that um, to do my job. But I think it's important for me to stay connected to the industry because I think some of the research that I do can inform the industry, but also I need to know what's happening with the, the people that are in the trenches so that I can develop research to help solve some of these problems. So I see it as a very mutual relationship to where we have to, we have to be entrenched in developing relationships with the industry in order to really do what we do well. Um, and I think, you know, the academics that, don't connect with the industry at all and have no interest in connecting and are, you know, purely interested in their research areas and the theoretical implications only of those research areas. And I think, I think they're kind of selling themselves short and I'm not judging them in any way. I just feel like, you know, there's an opportunity to do so much more for the industry in general, but society also, um, that they may be missing out on by not giving a little bit more of themselves. I think those are really great and a good 
way to end. Um, you know, I think this will be helpful for people who are considering that avenue. I really, really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us. And, um, you know, I know we've been trying to make it happen for a while and you've been really patient with me. So thank you so much. You've been patient with me and I, I appreciate you thinking of me, to be honest. I look at the list of, of guests that you've had and I feel, you know, completely honored that you would ask me um, to be to be on your podcast. So so thank you for asking me. And also thank you for all that you do for UMass. You know, I I would be negligent if I didn't mention how much we value you as an alum of our program um, and all the time and effort that you give back to our program. So, you know, thank you for all that you do. And thank you for honestly just being you and being someone that our students can look up to and say, hey, that's someone that I, I think I might want to be like that person when I go out in the industry. So we yes. appreciate it. Don't be like me when I was at UMass. Be like <laughs> me as I am now. <laughs> yeah, now we all we all have our stories, right? Yeah. But uh, we really appreciate you. Well, I appreciate the school too. And I mean, obviously I wouldn't be where I am without um, having gone through the program um, and learning what I, you know, really thought I would be interested in and am. So, um, you know, love all around. Thank you so much again to Neff for uh, being patient with me with scheduling and uh, for for being someone that I count as um, a a trusted advisor. Um, I I think you all um, will have learned a lot after this episode, which is great. Um, don't forget to rate review. Um, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever your podcatcher of choice is. Apple Pods, uh, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, RadioInfluence.com. You can always go to our website, which is uh, ltpfpod.com. Please note that this episode will not be on there until the weekend because I just can't get it there until this weekend. <laughs> Um, and then social media, like I said at the top, um, check us out at LTPF pod on, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And my personal Twitter is at Bobby Sue. I am so happy to have been back this week and I'm looking forward to being back next week. And I hope you all enjoy the rest of your week. This is a Jim Fannin Show Quick Fix on Radio Influence. How you manage this stress and how you think in stressful times is going to influence everybody around you. If you could choose one person right now in your life, and most of us have up to 50 people in your inner circle that you interact with on a daily and weekly basis. Some you like, some you don't like that much enough to go out and hang out with them but hey i work next to them they're part of my team at work 50 people if you could change one person who would that be and what would you want to influence the jim fannin show can be found on apple podcasts stitcher TuneIn radio google play and radioinfluence.com 